This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This week on Hangar Talk, my GoFlight sells its HUD business. And the FAA's IACRA is the latest database victim. UND studying pilot health habits. And the WAY Conference, Women in Aviation International, sets a record turnout. Also, David, Heli Expo's in swing, and it's doing pretty well also. Well, Ian, I want to hear more about Heli Expo and WAY. Are you ready to do some Hangar Talk? Let's do it. From AOPA, your freedom to fly. This is Hangar Talk. The 1056 turn right heading 130, counterpack final 132.4. With your hosts, Ian Twombly and David Tulitz. This is Hangar Talk. Welcome to Hangar Talk, everybody. I'm Ian Twombly. And I'm David Tulis. David, our guest this week, you got to not only interview, but also fly with, and he's got the coolest job in the world. So tell us about him. Craig Fuzz Patton. He's from Australia. He is an aerial firefighter, Ian, and we just did some training. Actually, we're going to have a couple of stories out of the training that they did in Claiborne, Texas, near Dallas. It's with the Dauntless Air Group. Ian, they use an aircraft that you might be familiar with somewhat. It's the Air Tractor 802 outfitted with floats, mm-hmm. and the Dauntless Air team uses a um, Really, they fly in formation, Ian. We'll hear more about that to be at the head of the fire and put out firefighters right where they start. It's a fascinating process, and Fuzz is going to tell us a lot about it. Really excited to hear more about that. We'll get to him in a few minutes. First, let's talk about the news, David. First, we want to discuss my go flight and their HUD business. Now, this is a product that we haven't really talked about before. And now they have offloaded that portion of the business to another company. Yeah, we haven't talked about the HUD here on on our show, but that is something that my GoFlight has been working on for quite some time. And just to give folks a perspective of that, I guess an industrial or military HUD, a commercial HUD, is they they cost in excess of hundreds of thousands of dollars. Yeah. And my go flight brought that down to I know it was like twenty, thirty thousand dollars. Folks in a PC twelve, maybe a citation, something like that, would be interested in that. So this is something that my go flight had been championing for quite a while. And it was, uh, I want to say it started more or less as a side business for them, Yeah. but it involved a lot of resources and a lot of testing and it actually does work. Our own Tom Haynes got a chance to try it out and it does work, but it has been sold to Aero Brigham. Yeah. So, you know, Charlie, the, the CEO of Mygo Flight who passed away, boy, I guess maybe it was a little over a year ago now, I want to say. Right. Back in December of uh, over a year ago. Okay. Yeah. He, he was a real champion of this product. I think he was very passionate about it. It's obviously a lot different than other stuff they were doing. I mean, you know, you think of my GoFlight, you think of iPad accessories and cool luggage and stuff like that. And so the HUD was a bit 
out of their standard product line, but still a really cool item. And I think has a lot of potential and obviously others feel that way too. And so it kind of makes sense that they've um, spun off this portion of the business, but this is really neat. These, these low cost HUDs. I mean, I would love to see these get down into GA because they are, they're just fascinating. I just think they're so cool. In fact, there's a tie in to the, to the fire boss that we were just talking about. The Dauntless air folks are installing HUDs into that, the fire boss aerial firefighting aircraft. So yeah, that does make a lot of sense. And folks like that who are doing these these real high stress missions, they really don't have the time. They're not afforded the time to look away. They need to look full forward. And in that case, a firefighting case, then that's a that's very critical. Yeah, I'm not sure that they're going with uh with the the my go flight system, but nonetheless, the concept of a HUD helps a lot of folks out. And I, I agree with you. I'm hoping at one at one point it'll come trickle down to those Cessna 172. Piper Tri-Pacer, you know, type folks. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, right. Could you imagine? Gosh, a Tri-Pacer with a HUD. So cool. Yeah. All right, David Iacra. This is this is not a four-letter word. This is a five-letter word that every flight instructor, every student has to deal with. They they We all just sort of, you know, bang our head against the wall with Iacra. Well, it had an outage at the end of last month at the worst possible time. That's right. It did. Now, look, first of all, it's the second database outage in, a, in quite a short time for the FAA. Good point. So it does put a little egg on their face. And we, we're not sure exactly what is uh, the cause of, of, of multiple database issues here. There's some investigation going on, but there was some data loss to the IACRA. Ian, I want to explain what IACRA is. It's a, mm. the FAA's Integrated Airman Certification and or rating application system. And it is the database that you apply to when you are going for uh, a new rating or even like when I went and got my seaplane rating, I had to make a login for that. And I'm guessing, you know, private pilots and, and on up, everyone is dealing with IACRA at this point. Yeah, so I've, I've most recently done it because of my CFI renewal. So I have to get into it every two years. And it's just this, I mean, I, I guess on one hand, it's a little bit easier because we don't have to go to the FISDO and that sort of thing. But it really was at the worst possible time. I mean, I think it was like the last two days of February, the first day of March. And so I know I am like a lot of flight instructors. And I know this because we get call reports into AOPA. So if you call the uh, the hotline, the techs will, they'll gather some of the more interesting stuff or trend things so that everybody in the company knows kind of what pilots are talking about and what they're they're asking about. And so always at the end of the month, we hear lots and lots of renewals coming in through ASI and people are calling scrambling last minute because if you don't renew by your date, your CFI is expired. It's expired, right? Yeah, with a DPE ride. And so nobody wants to do that. And I am like a lot of those people who often waits until the last minute. And so, man, I would have, oh my gosh, and I I have here on the screen, you know, causes panic. I think for those people at that time, it was definite panic. It is back up. They have a list of if you had interacted with IACRA over those days, what you need to now go back and do. And so if you were a new registrant, user profile update, password change, new application initiated, applications submitted and approved, previously existing applications that were signed during that time, verification of foreign licenses, or applicants who obtained an FTN to take a knowledge test. Go on that. Go on IACRA. Go on the website and look because it'll tell you exactly where you stand, what you need to do in order to make sure that you're you're on track still. That's right. And for folks who are listening to the Hangar Top podcast or checking us out on YouTube, folks were encouraged to wait until at least uh, Tuesday, March the seventh. So by the time this publishes, you, know, you should be good to go to check the application status. Yeah, that's right. All right, and we'll be right back. 
And welcome back. So before we move on with the news, we want to remind folks about an auction that AOPA is in kind of around Sun and Fun, and this is for the AOPA Extra 300L. The Extra 300L will be up for auction, Ian, and it'll be on aircraftbidder.com. It's an online auction from March 20th to March 31st. So folks could get their hands on that Extra that we've been using for upset training. Hmm, very cool. Okay, so check that out. In the meantime, let's move on. I want to talk about a study that UND recently commissioned or is or is in the midst of doing. Uh, actually, one that they did and one that they're going to be doing. And this is about health habits among pilots. So one thing that I think we're all aware of or we know friends who have done is this idea of healthcare avoidance because you're a pilot. Right. Absolutely. Yep. So you say, well, man, I got this thing that's nagging me, but it's like, I don't want to go to the doctor because what's going to happen to my medical certificate. And so they wanted to look into that and they found I, it's interesting, but maybe not terribly surprising, which is about, I think about half of pilots said that they have avoided healthcare because of this. 56% of U.S. pilots said that they avoided some form of healthcare. We want to tip our hats to the AvWeb folks who uh, published this story the other day. Yeah. And you know, Ian, um, I've got a I've got a regular doctor that I go to, you know, pretty frequently and he does a, a blood test for me, full write-up, because we do that for our health program at AOPA. We actually mm -hmm. get discounts for, for logging our food and for logging steps and things like that. But more than half of U.S. pilots said they had avoided some form of healthcare. And, you know, I understand it is if you're a commercial pilot, it's your livelihood. I get it. Yeah. But that's not going to help the overall safety record for folks and especially with pilot health. What if something comes up? What if you have a real, a real problem that could be easily solved? I mean, I just think that this is a, a, a could be problematic. Yeah, that's true. And, and I will say just from a regulation standpoint, you know, the regulation doesn't say if you go to a doctor and the doctor tells you to ground yourself, you have to ground yourself. It says right. you have to self-certify every flight. So if fit to fly every time you fly. Yeah. If you're feeling lousy and you know you're feeling lousy and you're avoiding going to the doctor, really you're not <laughs> abiding by the spirit of the regulations anyway. Right. Um, you know, I can't speak to the, you know, the letter and okay, could you be violated if somebody find out or whatever? I don't know. I think that's kind of beside the point. What's really the point is is you're supposed to be taking care of yourself, supposed to be going to the doctor. However, I'm with you. I understand it. I, you know, people say, oh, I had, you know, man, I got this stomach thing and I just, I didn't go to the doctor because I don't know how it's going to affect my medical. And I totally understand that. Sure. And that, th that of course speaks to the whole other issue about how invasive I'm going to call medical certification, especially for third class and how scary it is to get stuck in that special issuance loop. And I mean, I totally get it. Well, yeah, I do, but I got to say this, Ian. I'm gonna. Uh, there's a feather in our cap here for the folks at the at the PIC group, the medical group at AOPA, and they've helped a number of pilots out of some medical jams. This group knows their way around. They know their way around the the medical situation. Yeah. Gary Crump, who heads that department, is uh, is literally a genius when it comes to that. He's been honored nationwide with all of his knowledge helping pilots through these different uh, special issuances. And you know what? I had a little issue come up with me and uh, and our pilot group, our PIC group helped me out, the medical folks. They got this whole deal going in like two weeks. Now, I'm not saying that it'll happen for two weeks for everyone, but, right. but, I, but I had the documentation there. And that is what counts. You've got to start ahead of time, uh, weeks ahead of time, if not 
a month or two ahead of time if you know you've got a problem. But I would say not to really be that afraid of it, but to talk to our folks. Yet another reason to be an AOPA member. Mm-hmm. Let them walk you through it. And uh, I would do that before even uh, you see your health professional, maybe talk to our, our folks first. That's a good point. I will say this, not probably not our generation, but the generation underneath. A lot of folks have been diagnosed at an early age with some kind of ADHD situation, mm-hmm. yeah. which used to be a discounting issue. Yeah. But I believe the FAA is uh, and the medical group is being a little bit more understanding about that if it was something that happened so long ago. Yes. Now, you still have to jump through the hoops a little bit, but I would not I would not let that discount you from flying without talking to a professional. Yeah, that's a good point. Also, we will say that if you've been reading Pilot Magazine or the website, you've seen this, but Susan Northrup is the federal air surgeon now, and she is a legit GA pilot, passionate about aviation. She's not just uh, somebody who they put in this job who can you know manage people and is a doctor or yada yada, right? Like she is, she's legit, part of the community. So um, she's been great to work with. She's trying to make meaningful, substantial changes there. These things take a lot of time, obviously. You mentioned mental health. I know that they've gotten involved in that and many other things. So I think time, hopefully, you know, we're getting to the right place. Basic Med obviously helps a lot of people out with this. But this study, if you're interested, you can go on AvWeb's website. Like you said, they have the story. They have the link to the new study, which is UND and NBAA. They're, they want to dig a little bit deeper into this question about, okay, so we know pilots, some pilots are avoiding medical care because of their medicals. And so how medically astute are they? And that's what this next survey is going to look at next study. So, yeah. It's, it's an interesting issue. Yeah, yeah, it is. All right, so moving on, as you like to say. Yeah. You want to bring us to the next story? Where Are we going to talk about uh, Women in Aviation International? It's Women in Aviation International Week, actually. It's you know uh, usually the 1st of March, mm-hmm. so uh, International Women's Day. Yeah, that's right. So they just held the conference. It was uh, Southern California, was it? I know it was in California. Anaheim, maybe? Um, massive, massive success. We celebrated uh, with some of our, our female uh, uh, colleagues at AOPA. We had a all hands on deck meeting uh, about a week ago and so the uh the women got together for a group photo they were very excited for that and we like to showcase them too but ian let's read a little bit about um the story that, that alicia heron wrote she is based in california she says that way had a record turnout of more than 4,500 attendees. Wow. So that is significant. It was a fun day, actually. Yeah. And look how many female aviators, and, and actually just, you know, look how many females there are in total at AOPA. I think that's very significant of how we want things to keep going. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, good representation in the company, which we're quite proud of. So, yeah, the conference, which has always been big, for well of course it started as i think a women focus group the conference had started to attract men who were interested in job hunting because um it is the kind of place where you can go and get a job i mean you can go you can and get an interview on the spot and get a job and so yeah alicia was saying that people are people are being hired on the spot there were these 4500 people yeah they have you know these long lines at these tables airlines are there all kinds of places and people are going and uh and interviewing on the spot and getting jobs it's it's an incredible place and they always say that the energy is fantastic super yeah positive passionate yeah following up on that for sure uh, one of our one of the folks who have been on hangar top before kim kish she's a corporate pilot out of chicago and she helped present uh, corporate aviation, you know, workshop. And she had quite a few people uh, with her helping, uh, present and she had a packed house and, uh, you can just see that the buzz was so intense for the women in aviation international event. 
And next year's is going to be in Orlando. So oh, cool. make plans for 2024, March 21st through the 23rd. All right, cool. So also another event, Heli Expo, that's going on, I think, as we record this, just the tail end. Nothing earth-shattering has come out of the event so far, but I will say, just like we've been hearing from Oshkosh and Women in Aviation and Sun and Fun and all the other big events, super positive things coming out from attendees. There's been some talk about it being the best helicopter market in the past decade, the offshore kind of rebounding. And so just lots of really positive stuff there. Yeah. And in fact, uh, AOPA Pilot Magazine, we just recently featured an offshore helicopter business and uh, they uh, they were shuttling people to and from the oil rigs out there in the Gulf. I don't know if you recall, but I was absent from Hangar Talk uh, a couple of weeks ago when I was out of town mm-hmm. and I went to MD Helicopters outside of Mesa, Arizona. It's right before the Buckeye fly-in event and got to fly in one of those no-tars, no-tail rotors, MD-600 helicopters. It was a great photo platform and we were photographing and videotaping an MD-500E helicopter. And why were we there, you might ask? Because... The MD Helicopter Company has come back. They have a new uh, CEO, uh, Brad Peterson, who was with them in the 80s as an engineer. Mm -hmm. And he is running the show now, and they are back up to speed. Uh, They had a little bit of a change of hands. You know, they're directing that operation. They had a lot of military contracts, which they still are concentrating on. But I got to tell you, the law enforcement community... And even the private helicopter community has really wrapped themselves around MD Helicopters because it is such a storied brand yeah. and a very interesting helicopter line. Yeah, yep, that's right. So I think they're back. The, Brad had mentioned at Heli Expo that they, it's, he says, well, we're basically a brand new company with a new direction, which is really cool. Robinson, they're celebrating 50 years. They wow. are increasing production because they have so many orders, which is fantastic. Enstrom is there proudly displaying their back, we know, from Chapter 7. You wrote a story about them not long ago, about yep. Enstrom changing hands, yeah. Yeah, and in fact, they just a news that says they're going to add a governor to the um, to the F-28, which is very cool. The I just I saw that the uh, Airbus, the H-125, which a lot of people know is the A-Star. That's a big helicopter. Yep, they've added a Genesis for access autopilot, which means it theoretically would be certified for IFR. Oh, wow. Which would be huge. Huge for a lot of these medevac operators. And boy, I don't know. I think there was a couple other bits that came out. Anything out of anything out of Textron Bell with a 505 or anything else they're working on that you recall? Well, they just flew the 505 on 100% SAF, which is very cool. And the 525, I know they're saying maybe certified by the end of the year. So, And then Jim Viola, who's the CEO of HAI, saying that they want to maybe reposition position better themselves a little bit more for to totally encompass vertical lift which means obviously ev tall wow yeah kind of a controversial idea amongst the traditional helicopter folks uh in the community but i think there's a recognition that the companies need to kind of go that way and so obviously maybe the association does as well well ian because of your background in helicopters and also gyros (laughs) we're uh we're pleased that you're on board and you keep up with that part of the industry and really help push us along and give us the latest on that. So I know that you're invested in the, in the helicopter side and the rotor side, and I was very glad to hear your update just now. I guess we'll have to look forward to see what else is out there as far as different technology. You talked about SAF, other types of fuels. So 
very that's very interesting and there's a lot going on in the helicopter world yeah oh i should say actually one thing before we go is that schweitzer which a lot of training operators obviously love and have used for many years they have been back right they've been supporting the old brands this company in texas they have been building sort of onesie twosies helicopters but they have to have this really close fa oversight with production making inspecting everyone well they just got their production certificate so that's a big Fantastic. deal because now they can actually yeah produce these things without the really close oversight they can self-certify so and more competition in the helicopter world if yeah. you bring another when you bring a storied manufacturer like that back into the fold absolutely uh yeah that's right so dave speaking of fun flying helicopters you know they're a ton of fun to fly fuzz this guy, I know they're professionals. They're flying every day. That's a very serious business. But man, the video, it makes it look like so much fun, too, I got to say. I'm an Australian uh, commercial pilot and rotary commercial pilot. Uh, I fly uh, the Fireboss in America, Alaska. Uh, I have flown it previously uh, on the Australian summer, the American summer here obviously in the US and in Greece for a program that we ran in uh, uh, 2020. So 34 years in uh, the low level environment, 11 years now on the Fireboss program and still really enjoying it. Uh, come to work in America for Dauntless simply for professional reasons. They're a terrific company and, uh, and I enjoy flying the aeroplane in such a dynamic environment uh, like the US fire season. Well, Fuzz, tell us a little bit about what a fire boss is and then we'll go back to a little bit of your history of how you got started in aviation. What's a fire boss? Fire boss uh, essentially is a, uh, is a modified 802 with the Whipline 10,000 series amphibious floats fitted. It's a very challenging aircraft. It can be extremely effective on the fire ground. Uh, I spent many years flying wheeled seats uh, and an agricultural background in Australia, like you know, 15 to 20,000 hours of that type of low-level environment. So obviously, anyone uh, with that stick and rudder time is well suited to this to progress into this system. Not all people with that skill set get through into the Fireboss program simply because it's a pretty interesting environment to, to get involved in for a start. Okay, so for folks that don't know what an 802 is, it's an air tractor commonly used for agriculture. Correct. And it comes with a hopper. A hopper holds what normally? The 802 can carry up to 800 gallons. And this aircraft, sometimes in the delivery system, 800 gallons, maybe every three to five minutes on a typical turnaround. The US is so good that they understand the concept of initial attack, which is incredibly efficient. And we run four, sometimes more aircraft in flights. You might have multiple flights. So yeah, the, the, the potential to deliver high rates of water and rapid turnarounds is, is very effective. And primarily our, our role is to support people on the ground, which you know all Dauntless staff uh, are very passionate about. That's a, that is our primary role, is to support the, the ground firefighters or the ground pounders, as we call them. And uh, anyone that's worked with those guys understands the hard work they put in. We don't put the fires out, those guys do, but you know, we're, uh, Dauntless is, you know, we're very mission orientated to support those people the best that we possibly can. And Absolutely, well, we'll let folks know that there's a little bit of wind noise because we're on the ramp here at Claiborne, Texas, yep. which is fire boss training territory for Dauntless Air. Uh, we're, we're next to eight, 
fire bosses that are single occupant aircraft. There's a dual occupant fire boss for training as well. And uh, off camera, there's a brand new air tractor 802 that will be soon outfitted with the special floats and the special scooping mechanism yes. to get that lake and stream water into the hopper and then put fires out. So tell me a little bit about what it takes to become an aerial firefighter. In the US, the aerial firefighting program involves um, you know, people that need to have s s some prerequisites with low-level agricultural background in the seat world, you know, and in instrument rating, which because we do fly-arounds, not IFR, but where we need to be prepared for that situation. Uh, there are multiple courses with, uh, you know, that we need to attend, which one's NAFA, which the uh, Forest Service puts on to, to get people up to speed, to get people to in, uh, operate in the low-level environment. And also there's a mountain course uh, for, for mountain flying, which backcountry mountain flying, it's, I believe, is very essential to the role of firefighting because we're always in that environment. So, you know, there's, it, it's quite a long process. Most of the, you know, and Dauntless Air has a very broad range of people that that fit back into that into that environment. We have A-10 pilots, military guys with, you know, F-18 experience. Then we have lots of high-time stick and rudder agricultural guys which which slot into that role extremely well because they have those skills but all together this is a wonderful blend there's so much brought to the table in Dauntless Air which which I really like being part of which is the reason I come from down under to come here to fly US fire seasons. That's true and it's like a big family I've experienced the past couple of days you know the thing about this type of flying you, you brought into it you need mountain experience you need a little bit of IFR work you need some agricultural experience tailwheel experience flight float seaplane experience absolutely because you're scooping the water from from a lake or a stream tell us a little bit about the procedure for coming in and making that scoop what do you do what are you looking at and then where do you go with it the progression into the fire boss world was quite easy for me because I'm a, I'm a boaty I do a lot of fishing and a lot of time on the water so for me the natural progression and the, the ability to be able to read water is as much if not more in this role than being an aviator. Certainly part of it, to be able to read the water, to be able to read the conditions, and then transfer that to be able to, uh, to be as efficient, as efficient as you can on the fire ground. So our normal course of action on a fire would be, we would track out to the fire. We have a, an air attack, an aircraft over the top. They're feeding us intel all the way. It's up to us to extract the necessary information that we need. Uh, of the fire and then the scooping area, the lake or the river or, and some of these areas are quite challenging. You know, in Alaska, they, uh, you know, a lot of the sloughs we use are challenging. They're, they're narrow, they're always wind dependent and uh, that can be a really stressful time early in your career. Uh, later on, I have a lot of time in the aircraft now and, uh, and, and it's second nature, but it's a very challenging environment and Dauntless puts so much time above and beyond the requirements to make sure that we have that covered because we want to be professional and as efficient as we can to support those people on the ground. So. Sure, sure. Alright, so you're coming in, you're going to scoop some water. What's your approach speed? Ideally in this aircraft, it's so dependent on, on the water conditions. Usually around the, the 90 to 100 knots and we go on the water at about 75. We might come back to 65, 70 on the scoop, you know, maybe something around that figure. Uh, the aircraft, you know, 16,000 pound aircraft, you are fully loaded. It, everyone thinks it's a rocket ship, but it's not. You know, it takes some finesse to get it off the water cleanly and neatly. 
then we would manoeuvre in a flight of four or um, two or four aircraft normally to the fire ground and sometimes that might happen every six minutes you'll be back in that same situation so you know being able to judge that water easily and quickly and assess not only that but the fire situation in usually normally hot a turbulent uh, and low visibility situations it does take an element of skill and, and experience to put yourself in that situation safely and confidently. And generally you're going to have a lot of wind because the wind is what's whipping the fire up in the first place. So you're in these canyons sometimes, you're in the, like you said, you're, you're dipping out of a slough, but then you're trying to avoid uh, obstacles and terrain and there's a lot of wind involved because otherwise you wouldn't have a wildfire. 26 years fighting fires and 34 years in total in the low level environment. I've never seen a, a wildfire start on a good day. It's never, it's never peachy. It's never, it's never 10k vis. It's, it's always blowing. Uh, you get everything thrown at you. Then, on top of that, we have to deal with being able to assess that fire ground. Sometimes we're operating at six, eight, ten thousand feet. So we have density altitude issues that all need to be taken into account. Uh, operational conditions with you know, you know, aircraft and air attack supervisors with no different. They're essentially an air traffic controller above the fire. So we have climb performance that we have to adhere to. You know, we have airspace management that we have to adhere to. So there is a lot going on in that period, you know. So what, what little I know about this operation during training, you have a, a larger aircraft, maybe a King Air, circling above the fire, kind of directing folks like yourself and the, the other Dauntless pilots. And you can't, you, there's an altitude you can't break. Like you have a ceiling, right? Yeah. Yes, and generally in a Firebox flight, we would, they would allocate us a level to come in and out on and then which separates us from the other aircraft so that air attack supervisor is essentially the conductor of the choir or the orchestra you know that's that's their position and that's what they do and luckily we uh, we do have some really good air attack supervisors that Dauntless brings into our training program and we, you know I just can't emphasize enough that I've seen a lot of training programs across the world now in this in this seat environment in this fire environment and this is a really well-run organisation, with, uh, and it shows. You know, it, it really does show. They're really big on the mentor program, which I really, really love, which is probably why I'm here. And I really enjoy the fact of being able to, to mentor new people coming into this game and give them my, the, the bit that I've learned, generally from the mistakes that I've made too, Dave, uh -huh. and been lucky enough to get away from. You know, and the industry's changed drastically in the last... 10 to 15 years, you know, safety's become paramount. <laughs> uh, how do you how do you live together? Are y'all, I mean, uh, you're here on site here during training, you've got hotels, but in the field, uh, what? Uh, that's something I was just, I uh, didn't really think about asking. How, how do you deal with that? What's uh, What are the accommodations like? Uh, look, it varies. In a lower 48, it's usually very nice. Um, we have a hotel accommodation, but air bases vary drastically from a gravel runway and a tin shed to lie in, it's always hot, it's always uncomfortable, and sometimes you're on duty for 14 hours. That's our duty period. Alaska is completely different. Alaska, we stay all over the we're a federal contract, so we're statewide through Alaska. We can be anywhere, you know, Fort Yukon, we're in barracks or you know little tin huts, or even uh, Alaska, we carry a full camp complement with us in the aircraft, so should we have to out, we might be in the tent for, the, for a night or two. It's Boy Scout stuff back to the good old days. Very interesting. <laughs> now, you are on the road a lot. You said you had a very understanding wife and family. What does a typical year look like for Fuzz? Right now, I just, uh, I've slipped back to just flying the U.S. fire season, which still, in, still involves five, six months of the year. 
in pretty or maybe five months away from home. That's a tough thing. Anyone that's long-term or I call a lifer in this game, this industry, and I have lots of good friends and associates that are in the, in the same boat. Behind every one of those girls and boys is an understanding partner. So that's, that's a big part of the job. And my wife, Sandy, she understands that aviation's been 34 years of my life. Still, I'm still passionate about it. She knows I still enjoy it. As tough as it is, my children are the same, James and Macy. They make allowances. They understand that's my job. And I suppose I've been doing it for so long, Dave, it, does, it works. But for younger people coming into the industry, with so many opportunities now in aviation, I understand it's tough. And it is tough. You give up so much for this game. But by the same token, for me, it's a very satisfying job. Well, you're helping people and you're really avoiding major disasters that could uh, occur because uh, your team is really the front of the fire. The folks that really associate uh, a lot of aerial firefighting, they, they, they typically see the large aircraft with the red fire retardant being dropped down, but that's really a last resort when your team can't really control the fire. That's what I learned in the past couple of days. Uh, a little bit that way. It's, uh, you know, we are a tool in the toolbox of the agency, depending on the customer for us. So whether that's the US Forest Service, the BLM, or the Indian Bureau of Indian Affairs, they pick the dispatch system is, is, a, is an intricate matrix of why or how we send what resources, depending on what's available and what the situation is on the day. So the Fireboss primarily is an initial attack aircraft, which is extremely capable in that situation if we get there early. And I understand you have a YouTube channel. I was hoping you could tell us uh, what folks could search for when they want to find you on YouTube and what types of videos they could expect. I have a YouTube channel which is become a little bit of a, a, a passion of mine because we have a lot of spare time as well, waiting around fire, bases waiting for fire to start. I have a YouTube channel, it's Craig Patton 2456 on the YouTube channel. You can look it up. There's a multiple of uh, six or eight videos on there, including a couple from Greece, which has got some, if you're an aerosexual, there's some pretty cool stuff on there. <laughs> I like <laughs> that. that. I'm sure that people will enjoy. Uh, take the time, there's some good Alaska video footage. It's nice to see the, not only the scenery, the lifestyle that we live in. If anyone was interested in the Fireboss program, which I would encourage anyone, if they're, if they're an aviator and they think they can do it, can't step forward because we're always looking for good people. There's a pretty good insight into what the life of a Fireboss pilot can be like. So Craig, tell us a little bit about how you got started in aviation. Well, I was a country boy uh, in rural New South Wales, Australia. I had never, ever even sat in an aircraft in my life. We are into racing boats and motorbikes and the company that I worked for had a spray business. The CEO of that company thought that I was a decent young guy. This was when I was 16. Uh, he lent me the money to get through my commercial license, which was terrific. I obviously paid that back. We ran into a drought three years after I gained my commercial license. And I came back uh, 12 years later and I bought that business off him. I'd worked hard. I went north and I uh, sprayed cotton, all rice, lots and lots of night spraying in aircraft. A uh, very dynamic environment as well, the, the agriculture spraying industry, tough game. So I learned my trade in the agricultural game, which, you know, that was 24 years of my life, which I really enjoyed, but, you know, my plan was to always get out of it at 40 or 45, which I did. And, uh, and I progressed, of course, with my air tractors time into this. Jess Weaver came to Australia uh, to start our Fireboss program 11 years ago. Mm -hmm. 
we became good mates and the rest of us history. So I'm so glad that Jess had gave me the opportunity and it's funny how life works out, isn't it? You know, I never ever thought that I would, A, would be a pilot because no one else in the family was a pilot, but that's my aviation story. You know, some people have a lifelong dream to do it, but, and some people stumble into it like me. So, which it's been good and after 34 years, I still enjoy the job. <laughs> so you started in the agricultural business and then you really had an eye, you were thinking, well, these are cool airplanes that I see, you know, going back and forth and helping the farmers. And then you got the urge to, you know, progress. And it sounds like you had a key mentor in the process. I did. My chief pilot that I originally started flying with, Mike Jushul, he retired. When I bought that business, he came back and worked for me, which was fantastic. And it's the key to all aviation, isn't it? I was trained by a true professional early in my flying career. A lady, Judy McKenzie, taught me to fly. And I, and I just can't emphasize enough to get a good instructor. You get taught by the right people. I still don't break those golden rules that I was taught all back in those days. Touch wood, maybe it's luck. Nearly 20,000 hours, not one accident. So it's a good, in our game, that's a pretty good gig, but it does come down to good training and good instructors and, and stick with what you will learn. Follow the safety protocols. Don't cut corners. It's, it's just history repeating itself. You can Sounds be safe. exactly right. Yeah. You have a, have a good instructor, adhere to the rules, have good safety protocols, the things that we learned as a private pilot. Exactly. Outstanding, Craig, Fuzz, Patton. <laughs> and one more time how folks could find you on YouTube. They could find me on, uh, well, I'm on the socials, of course, Facebook. Okay. You could hit me up. Anyone that's interested in the industry, hit me up on that or talk to Dauntless Air. But I do have a YouTube channel. It's lowercase, Craig Patton, 2456. You're more than welcome to become a subscriber and have a look at a few interesting videos of our world as a, as a Fireboss pilot. Craig, appreciate you spending time with us today. I know you got a lot more training to do while you're out here in Texas. Appreciate your time, and I don't want to keep you from your colleagues and from your good buddies, but thanks again. Thanks, Dave, and thanks to AIPA. All right, so you got to tell me, what was it like to fly the Fireboss? Ian, the Fireboss, first of all, it flew like a champ. It was great. It was uh, very responsive. And I really enjoyed it. You know, I've got a seaplane rating. I don't use it that often. This aircraft has monstrous pontoons on it. Amphibia is an amphibious setup. Mm -hmm. But you know what, Ian? I haven't done that much ag work, but here's what, what blew my mind. You could hold the control stick and push the rudder in and turn left, and the aircraft will go in a bank but it won't turn unless you add flaps. Hmm. So there's an electric control switch for flaps. And when you deploy the flaps, that is when that aircraft turns on a dime. And listen, that is how they're using that airplane. They're yanking and banking that to get over these fires, to go in and scoop the water nearby. It was really interesting. It was an eye-opener to me deploying flaps to initiate a turn wow. in an air tractor. And Ian, that is a huge engine in that airplane. Yes. And it, it'll it'll get somewhere fast. You know, it'll it'll cruise about 140, 150 knots if you want it to. Hmm. Uh, 93 gallons per hour. I was looking at that, and, and it was by gallons, not by <laughs> pounds. 
So that yeah. was interesting. Twenty five gallons an hour in idle, you know. So oh my gosh. Yeah, and that's for jet A fuel. But very interesting aircraft. One thing that the fire boss pilots are trained to do is they're trained to immediately determine whether they have an, an asymmetrical scoop position and that would be like an asymmetrical flap position one scoop would go down to su- to suck the water in and the other wouldn't and you would you, you basically are doing a 180 pretty quick like that so that's a that's a definite you know engine to idle no go situation and they were they were harping on that safety uh, quite a lot but what a cool airplane what a giant aircraft you know it just it took a while even to climb up in the cockpit of that thing <laughs> you need a ladder yeah all right i'm ian twombly our editor is austin hansen i'm david tulis don't forget you can find us at aopa.org slash hangar talk and wherever you get your podcast and also find us on the youtube channel all right we'll see you david see you hangar talk from aopa your freedom to fly.